Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the service. My name is Eric. I go by E, and if you can reduce your name to a letter, I would highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we're talking today about gratefulness, and it's interesting because by and large, especially in America, we are an ungrateful bunch of folks. Um, I was in a store just a couple of days ago, actually, and Karen uh, was trying to get me to buy a giant TV because there were a lot of them on the wall, and she was trying to convince me to buy one, and I was saying, no, we don't need our TV. Our current TV is fine. You just got to settle down. Um, but there were, there were kids and a mom as I was wandering around. And, and it was interesting because there was like a, a brother and like a sister that was a little bit younger. And the brother said, Mom, I just want to thank you for how well you helped for me, how well you helped provide for me and my sister. Our lunch today was delicious. And in fact, I don't remember a time when I was hungry and you didn't give me something good to eat. You know, these shoes I'm wearing, they're brand new. And you did not hesitate to buy them for me when the old ones were getting too small and started to hurt my feet. Uh, you and dad worked so hard to provide a safe place for me and my little sister. You give us clothes to wear. And you know what? I do not want a toy today. I don't want one. I, I just want you to receive my gratitude since it is both sincere and heartfelt. <laughs> uh, wait, that's not what happened. That kid was going, mommy, 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 mommy. I want a toy, I want a toy, I want a toy. And the, and the mom said, because this is Northern Virginia, it made me laugh. Okay, okay, you can have one $70 item, but that's just it, just one, cutting you off it, you know. And so the kid went and picked out a thing, and it was, it was good. <laughs> the thing that, uh, that, that hits me, and, and that I don't think about often enough, and I'm, I'm very guilty of this, is in the last year or so, there's been a lot of talk about the 1% and the 1% paying their fair share in taxes and that kind of thing. And this isn't a political commentary, but just let me say this. When I was in the corporate world, I used to travel a fair amount. And I went to places like the Philippines and got away from Manila into the provinces. I went to South Africa and I got to drive around Johannesburg, where 40% of the population has, no kidding, AIDS. Um, <laughs> I got to go to India, to Mumbai, to Delhi, to Bangalore, where people either are driving Rolls Royces or they're lucky to have shoes. And it just seems like there's a weird, there's not a lot of people in the middle. <laughs> um, and when you look at poverty and you look at a global worldwide scale, we are already the 1%. The global median salary, and median means if you, have, if you, if you take all the salaries in the world and, and pretend like there are 100 people, salary number 50 is uh, $1,225. That's not per month, that's per year. That's the global median salary, $1,225 a year. <laughs> the threshold to get into the elite group, that 1% is $34,000 per person. Most people in Northern Virginia are there. I mean, a lot of people are there already. We are the 1%. And it seems to me that, that we should be more grateful for the blessings that we have. We are in an amazingly wealthy country. There are so many things that we have that we take for granted, like clean water, like people to come take our trash away. <laughs> there are some countries that don't have these basic of basic things. And trust me when I tell you that it makes our life better. So what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about four aspects of gratefulness, uh, springboarding off of Ruth chapter two. So let's read a little bit of that and we're going to talk about uh, some gratefulness. All right, here we go. Ruth chapter two. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose shite I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Um, doing a message on gratefulness, it, it's hard to, one of the things you have to understand is when, whenever you're preparing to deliver a talk like this, you dig in, you pray, you look at stuff, you listen to a bunch of sermons to see what they might have to say about this passage or about this topic, and it's just a really cool time of digging into what God would have to say about a particular subject. The reality is the teacher gets a lot more out of it than the students do. And so one of the things that I'm very grateful for is the opportunity to learn about these things. I, I try to present it well, and I try to do that in an interesting way that doesn't put you to sleep. But the reality is I get so much more out of this than you guys will just because of the amount of time and the amount of resources I've dug into to that. I'm grateful for the opportunity to prepare a message. I'd like to thank you guys for that. Another thing I'm grateful for just before, as we get started, is um, <laughs> I'm grateful for Ruth. It's just a fun story. In the context of scripture, it's a, it's a trick of literary analysis. Um, oh, yeah, you like that? <laughs> In the context of scripture, literary analysis, if you're reading along and all of a sudden you hit something that doesn't seem to fit, pay particular attention to that. So in the context of scripture, we're, we're in Judges, right? And the nation of Israel, is they, they, they fall away from God, and then they, uh, God raises up a judge, and they repent, and things go well for a while, and then the judge dies, and they eventually fall away. And they do this 12 separate times in the book of Judges, and they're up and down and up and down and up and down. And you're, you're thinking, gosh, would you please catch a clue until you realize that, gosh, all of us in our lives do that. <laughs> we, our lives look a lot more like the book of Judges than, you know, a, a, a stelling chalkboard to reality playbook. But we've got the nation of Israel, they're doing these things, they're going through a cycle, they're going through a cycle, and then they come to a place where there's a little love story, and then there's a thing where they say, we've got to have a king, and there's a prophet, and Samuel is thundering away, and you've got Saul who's a foot taller, and they, they institute a new government, and, and Israel starts to gain some ground as a nation, and you're like, wait a minute, wait, 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 love story? Well, you know, it's like, we're talking about how Israel transitions as a nation from the judges to the kings, 
And in dead in the middle of this is this little four-chapter love story that does not seem to fit. It's one of the beautiful things about the Jewish people is that they have poetry in their souls, right? They do. It's part of why God picked them to be his chosen people. It's part of how he has created them to be. They get taking a beat and appreciating something beautiful. They get taking a breath and looking at something good. And it's part, it's just really interesting to me that in their holy books, it's not just government and kings and stuff, but the longest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. And over and over and over again, they take time to put things in, like the book of Ruth. Never studied love stories in my American history classes, and maybe we should. <laughs> Another thing I'm grateful for is just on the way to the passage is, this is the best workplace ever. How cool would it be to have your boss come in and go, praise, you know, glory, glory, to the Lord be with you. And, and everybody goes, the Lord bless you, like Norm at Cheers, right? Norm, the Lord bless you. It's just what a wonderful, open uh, just godly thing. It just really resonated with me. It resonates with me every time I read it. To have a place where someone could just walk in and say, God bless all of you. And everybody just had that be sincere and heartfelt and not weird, right? And just say it back. It just would be a great place. So what I want to talk about in this chapter is I think there are four slices of gratefulness that I see. And I just want to talk about them. The first one is acceptance. The second one is safety. The third one is provision. And the fourth one is kind of the unseen, uh, the unseen working of God in the situation. So let's start with acceptance. This is in Ruth 2.10. Then she fell on her face, and bowing to the ground, she said to him, what, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? <laughs> Ruth was an immigrant, right? And, and every act of immigration is a, it's a big step. It's a leap. My great great grandfather was named Ferdinand and it was Ferdinand Reese. He immigrated from Germany to America right about the turn of the century. He's on actually on the rolls in Ellis Island. And I think back to that moment when he was on the ship coming into New York city and he sees the lady in the Harbor. Right. And I, and I just imagine even I, I never got to talk to the man. He was dead before I was born, but I can imagine the hope that he felt. I'm going to move out of a place where things are bad, and I'm going to go to another place where things can get better. And better for my, not just now, not just for me and my wife, not just for my children, but for my children's children, and my children's children's children, I'm going to a land of opportunity. Immigrants, as they come in, they have a tough road to hoe, right? Because they're, they're them, they're not us. And they've got to break into the group. But they do it with great hope. They come and they work hard, and their children are able to do good things normally. It's interesting that the hope that Ferdinand felt, my great-great-grandfather, is not a hope that Ruth felt. She was an immigrant, and it's ironic, but she was an immigrant really without that same hope. She wasn't coming to a better situation. She was coming to, on paper, a worse one. She was leaving her family. She was leaving her career path. She was leaving her uh, family and nation of origin. She was leaving her language behind. The religion of her father, she was living that behind. The, the where she, how she knew how to fit into society was off the table. And she was entering a life of poverty. She didn't have a clear path forward. She didn't have children. She had Naomi to take care of. And she didn't know where her next meal was coming from. Ruth's immigration was one without hope. Any, any act of immigration is a drastic one, but I think in Ruth's case, 
um, it gets amped a little bit. When I was in Oklahoma City years and years ago, um, I had a friend that was in the hospital. I was 18 years old. I was coming to visit them, and on the way in, it was about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, there was a, a guy who looked Mexican to me, um, didn't look, he didn't look very well off, he looked kind of poor, his, his clothes were kind of drab and his shoes were worn. And I looked at this guy, my first thought was, oh, this is an immigrant, <laughs> you know, maybe an immigrant farm worker, who knows what, maybe his mom is in the hospital and he's here and he's kind of waiting at the, at the bus stop. And I felt, God doesn't do this to me too often, but I felt, I need to give this guy a ride. But I was there to visit someone, I'm like, ah, you know, I, you know I'm just, just a burrito I ate that wasn't God, I'm not, you know. And so I went into the hospital, I went to see my friend, my friend was asleep. So I'm like, you know what, let him rest, I'm not gonna bother them, I'm not gonna bother them. Came back out, and I said, if that guy's still there, I'm gonna give him a ride. So I, I came back out, he was still there, he was waiting on a bus, and in Oklahoma the buses don't run after like six, so he would be waiting there all night for the bus. So I said, come on, do you need a ride? He's like, yes. And so I said, come on. So I, I packed him into my car, and I'm trying to talk to him, and he speaks a little bit of broken English, but English is clearly not his second language, and I'm asking him, you know, are you at the hospital? Is there, is there a family member who's, who's there? And he says, no, I'm a, and I couldn't understand what he said next. It was kind of a mumbled where I'm going, great, this guy's poor and a mumbler. This is not, so it's like, I just didn't know, I couldn't understand what he, and so he, he tried to say it two or three times and was getting frustrated, and I just couldn't understand what he was saying, and finally he says, I'm a heart doctor. <laughs> I'm teaching a symposium here at, at, you know, Baptist Hospital, and I'm like, oh, what he was saying was cardiologist <laughs> in broken English. It turns out that this guy was the, the head of of cardiology in Mexico City, he was teaching, no kidding, an international symposium on revolutionary new heart techniques and non-invasive surgery that is now, 30 years later, standard across the medical field. This guy's one of the smartest men in the world. <laughs> and I'm thinking, he's a poor, you know, poor little immigrant. It's like, no, no, this guy has got it going on. This guy is, is he's, you know, one of the smartest guys in the world. He's at the top of his field. You can't judge a book by its cover, right? It's like Lord of the Rings when, when Strider, they, they, they come in early in the story and they see Strider, and Strider, as we know, is, is Aragorn, but he, he looks like a scruffy, dirty, <laughs> probably smelly dude that's kind of in the back and he's just not very impressive. The reality is Strider is the king of the known world. He just hasn't come into his kingdom yet. And, and Tolkien's message is clear, and it's one that I learned with a cardiologist. Be nice to everybody because you just never know, right? It might be the king you're talking to that hasn't come into their, their kingdom yet. See, we look on the outside and we look at Ruth and we see someone from a foreign country who doesn't speak the language very well, who's poor and a lot of trouble. But what God sees is something else entirely. He sees a giant of the faith. He sees somebody that he's gonna fold into the line of Christ and bring us Jesus. He sees the heart, he sees the inside. He sees the thing that we don't express well. We have to learn to see beyond the outside. We have to learn to see through God's eyes. <laughs> Ruth's green card said Moab, vagrant, not much value. God's scorecard said something very, very differently. And Boaz, because he was tuned in, saw her through God's eyes and not through the eyes of culture. And she was grateful for his acceptance. The second slice of gratefulness is, is grateful for safety. Three different times it references her being harmed, which is interesting to me. I, I'm, I'm not sure of, of what the situation actually was, but that it was mentioned three times makes me pause. Um, there's not just the widows of the ostracized, but it seems to me that she was in a situation where being from Moab 
she might be the victim of violence. They were members of a hated race. She might have been in jeopardy. Again, Ruth was one of them, not one of us. But Boaz has something more in her than a foreigner, and he moved proactively to provide, not just for her acceptance, but also for her safety. He provided a safe place for her to work. He ensured that she would have a safe place going forward. Don't go somewhere else. You stay here with me, and I will exert my influence to protect you. And Ruth was grateful for the safety, right? Grateful for acceptance, grateful for safety. The third one is this, grateful for provision. Ruth 2.14 says this. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed it to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And it's just an amazing moment, and I, and I don't think we get quite uh, the import of what was happening here, but this was really, this was really a big moment. I, I'm reminded of, again, when I was a kid. <laughs> I was going to college, and I felt like I was where God wanted me to be. I didn't really understand that, but I really felt like God kind of nudged me to go to a specific school to have a, a, specific school to have a certain major. I had a scholarship, but it wasn't a full scholarship, and money was tight. My parents were kind of in a time of financial transition, and they just told me at the end of my freshman year, we don't have the dollars to, you know, to pick up the, the, the rest of the tuition and books and room and board and that kind of thing. And so what I was looking at was, gosh, I need to drop out of school for a year to work, to raise some money, and then go back. And that was fine. That wasn't that big of a deal. A lot of my friends did that kind of thing. But I was in a situation where I needed to figure it out, and I did not know how to get it done. And so I prayed, God, I think I'm where you want me to be. I think this is what you want me to do. I don't understand this. Give me the path forward. If you want me to get a job, lead me to the right job. If there's money sent from some other source, let me, just let me know what that is. And I, went into, I rolled into about five days of some of the most amazing events um, in my life. And it just raised my level of trust and raised my level for God as a provider to understand that he can do whatever he wants. I was still um, on campus. So after the semester was over, I went to my little mailbox. And there's a little room. You had a little key in the little box in the college, college dorms. And, and so I went open my mailbox and I got a letter. The letter said this. Hey, your, the, the state, your, your year of scholarships showed an unusual amount of people who scored really high on the standardized testing. So the scholarship that you were based on uh, was actually less than it would have been in any other year. The state legislature met. They decided it wasn't fair to punish uh, talented students. So we've decided to raise the amount of your scholarship by $2,000 a year. And here's a check for $2,000. Oh, by the way, uh, we, they decided to make it proactive, so here's another check for another $2,000 for the year that was already gone, that was retroactive, the year that had already been paid for. So I've got $4,000, I'm going, that's pretty good. I mean, like, you know, that might get, that might be able to go to, keep going to school, yay, <laughs> that's, that's kind of great. It's even better. I go to the little mailbox the next day, I put my key in the little thing, I turn the key, I open it up, and it says, we messed up your Pell Grant. <laughs> We just completely messed it up. We underpaid your Pell Grant by $1,200. So next year, here's a check for $1,200 to get you through next year. And oh, by the way, since we messed it up, here's another check for $1,200 more for last year because we didn't, we didn't do it right. So at this point, I'm four grand. You know, I'm, I can't do the math, but it's like $6,400 to the good. But from going to the mailbox and turning the little key, and I'm going, all right. So it's like, at this point, school's pretty much covered. This was a long time ago. School was less expensive then. The next day, 
I couldn't resist. I went to the little mailbox again just to see if there's anything else in there. You've won a scholarship that I, I, I promise you, I do not remember ever applying for the scholarship. Maybe someone did it for me. I, a scholarship I never applied for. I won and got another 600 bucks just to bump it up to seven grand just because God's showing off and could do whatever he wants, it turns out. And, and at that point, I'm going, wow, oh my goodness. And, and I kept thinking of the lines I'd heard from little country preachers from where I grew up. God can pay for what he orders. You know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God can do whatever he wants financially. I'm going, wow, that's pretty amazing. And I just said, God, thank you. I was so grateful. And I told everybody I could find, oh my gosh. <laughs> I prayed and money literally rained down out of the sky into my little college mailbox. It was amazing. And I checked it every day for a few more weeks just to see if, you know, that, that, that was it. But it was good. It actually covered my full year of college for the next year. And the increase in Pell Grant scholarship helped me get by. Fantastic. I was so grateful for God's provision. Listen, when we are, I'm not, it's not about the money. <laughs> it's not about the money, although that was cool. It's about when we are where God wants us to be, he will take care of us. He will give us the path forward. He will open doors that we don't have any way to open. It was really cool. It just, and my level for trust for God in that, in that way is just off the charts. But listen, Ruth came hungry. She didn't stay that way. She didn't know what was going to happen. She and Naomi might have prayed, and God brought something amazing. He brought provision to her personally right when she needed it, and not just in food. <laughs> she brought her to a community. Um, I grew up in a little farm town, and my grandmother used to tell me the story of how the farmers used to do it 100 years ago. And actually, it was very similar to how the farmers did it in Ruth's day. Farming didn't change much for 5,000 years until the, the tractors and the combines and the technology kind of took over. What would happen would be um, whenever the barley harvest or the wheat harvest was ready to go, all of the farmers in a community would band together into a large group, 100 or 120 people or so. And what they would do is they would look at whoever's field was ready to go first. They all would go to that field. And everybody had a job, right? The, the men would be the reapers. They would have these big scythes, and they would just swing these, uh, these sickles, and they would cut uh, the grain down. The teenage boys would come in behind them, and they would gather it up into bundles, and they would bind it into sheaves. Um, the teenage girls would actually come by and get the sheaves and carry them back. The women would start cooking at 5 o'clock in the morning, and they'd make a huge breakfast, and, they would, and everyone would sit down and have a feast, and then they would go out and work through the day. During the day, uh, the kids would actually shuttle water <laughs> and such out to the farmers, out to the boys, and the teenage girls might give some water to the boys. I don't know. It might have happened. Could, could, could be possible. Um, but it was just, and then at night, they would have another big meal. But it was just, and then they, when they were done with that field, they would go to the next field and just continue. It was this amazing time of community. It was this amazing time of hard work. And there was an urgency to it. Because when, when grain is ready to be harvested, it's very fragile. It's actually dead. When it turns the golden amber, plants aren't golden amber. That means it's dead, right? Um, but it's ready to be harvested. It's very fragile. If there's a big storm, it will knock it to the ground, and it's almost impossible to harvest it at that point. So when the harvest is ready to go, the farmers are like, there, there. As soon as the dew burns off and they can get in there, and they will work until they can't see <laughs> to harvest anymore. They'll work the 100-hour weeks. It's crazy, but it's also very life-affirming. It brings people together in a way like nothing I've ever seen. There's a buzz and an excitement about it, and there's a real sense, a real sense of community. Now, in Boaz's day, there was a provision for the poor. 
where to, in the fields they said, leave the corners, right? So what they would do is they would just kind of do a circle and leave the actual corner of the field. And the poor could come and they could come and get that grain and they could have a little bit of, of something to eat. And the reason they did that was, was two reasons. One, it's, it's kindness to the poor, which God is all about. But the second thing is, farmers do it today. I mean, a combine will just basically cut off the corner and, and, and make a curve and not worry about it because it's hard to drive a combine in a corner. It's hard to swing a scythe in a corner. It's just a little bit easier. And it's also a provision for the poor. So Ruth was coming to do that. She came to uh, glean a little bit of grain, but the poor who come to glean don't get invited into the community of farmers, into the community of landowners, into the community of workers, but Ruth did. He, had, he gave her a seat at the table, and it was just something amazing. And the last thing I want you to see about provision is that the, the amount of grain that she got from Boaz was a little bit over the top. Um, it says that, that when she beat it all out at the end of the day, she actually got an ephah of barley. Now, how much is an ephah? Well, I'm glad you asked. What she was expecting you to get was a couple of... Uh, a couple of days worth of food, it'd be about this much, honestly. Got some birds just for grins, but about this much. And so just to show you how much this would be, that's about how much she was expecting to get, right? And that would have been normal for uh, the activity that she was doing. Through the influence of Boaz and her telling her to go ahead and glean and then go glean among the sheaves, which was not allowed, and telling his men to throw out some extra, <laughs> well, the men wanting to please Boaz and probably very amused by the love story that's happening. This is how much grain she actually got. This is actually an ephah of material. And you'll, you'll never forget this. And I know I've done this before, but it's kind of fun. So you ready? This is going to prove two things. One, how much is an ephah? It's going to answer two questions. How much is an ephah? The second question it's going to answer is, does God in fact have a sense of humor? <laughs> so I think, so here we go. All right, keep it coming. Not done yet. Listen, when God provides, he can provide, right? It'd be like she came out to Panhandle to get a few bucks at the bus stop, and she comes back with $8,000, right? And when she gets home, Naomi says, all right, something happened. What happened? Because this is, you know, she's lugging this 50 pounds of grain going, oh, this is really heavy. Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do? God can provide beyond our ability to expect it, beyond our ability to see it. And sometimes in life, you'll have an ephah moment. For me, it was when I was in college, I've had a couple of others where God just dropped stuff on me out of the sky. And in those moments, we should be grateful. We should be grateful because he loves us and his blessings to us are something to be celebrated. So grateful for acceptance, grateful for safety, grateful for provision. The last one is this. Grateful for, I'll call it the unseen layer. <laughs> uh, Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of the Naval Treaty he uh, deduced his way to God's goodness, surprisingly, and our deserved gratefulness through looking at a rose he had picked. He said this, there is nothing in which deduction is so necessary as in religion. Our highest assurance of the goodness of providence seems to rest in flowers. All other areas, our powers, our desires, our food are really necessary for our existence in the first instance. But this rose, it's an extra. The rose's smell and color they're an embellishment of life, not a condition of it. It is only goodness which gives extras. And so I say that we have much to hope for from flowers. 
<laughs> so Sherlock Holmes deduced that from a flower, from the extraneous, that the skies are particularly pretty color blue, that God is good and that he loves us. And he seems to be saying that any God would give us something like a flower is a good God. And he produced some gratitude for it. Listen, there are lots of steps that God is working through the unseen layer. Uh, when I think about the, the scholarship, right, I went to the mailbox and got a thing, got a check that helped me in my college career, yay. But think about what had to happen for that to happen. Somebody had to notice that, you know what, there were, you know, the, the normal scholarship pull is weird, the numbers are off. Somebody noticed. A staffer went to the legislator and said, you know what, we need to fix this. We need to help these kids go to school. <laughs> there are kids with talent that don't have a lot of money. We should do this. They wrote a bill. They presented it. They debated the merits. They did this months before my check appeared in the mailbox. They passed the bill. <laughs> they put the mechanism in place. They fixed the money. The money went through the system. The checks were printed. The checks were mailed. <laughs> how many steps? How many weeks? How many months? Was God moving to answer my prayer before I ever prayed it? Isn't that amazing? God is working in an unseen layer. Step, 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 step. Then I ask for it. <laughs> it's already on the way. When I asked for it, it was probably already mailed before I even thought to ask. And we see this kind of thing in the book of Ruth. Ruth is about seeing the unseen. If you look at the book of Ruth, some of the things that you don't see are some of the most telling things. There are no miracles. There are no dreams. There are no visions. There are no prophets thundering away with the word of God and you need to repent and God is good and you've got to come back to him. There's nobody like that, right? There's no Isaiah's or Ezekiel's doing crazy stuff. What we do see is friendship. We see loyalty. We see appreciation. We see kindness. We see gratefulness. And we see God working behind the scenes to bring the right people together at the right time in the perfect place at the perfect time to do what he wants to do. Ruth 2, 11 says this. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord will pay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's so great. Ruth says, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, you've been so kind to me. And Boaz said, no, I've heard about what you've done and I have the opportunity to pay it forward a little bit. And you know what? God is the one who has rewarded you for your faithfulness. He takes your gratitude and he points it to God and it's a nice move. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to see the gospel in the lines of this chapter of Ruth, in the lines of this story. And I want you to see God working in your own story. Maybe you're Ruth. <laughs> Maybe you're feeling lost right now. Maybe you're feeling like you're a stranger in a strange land and you do not know what tomorrow will bring and it's distressing. Know, know that God values you. He values you for who you are and for who he created you to be. His heart is to protect you. His heart is to provide for you. His heart is to redeem you and bring you back to his table to his family. Step into his love and be grateful for his acceptance. Maybe the circumstances of your life are such that you feel like things are too much in flux. Maybe you don't feel safe. Know that God has your back. He does. We don't always see it, but he's there. Step into the center of his will. Do the very best you can and take refuge in his wings. Be grateful for the safety that he provides. 
Maybe you need provision. We all do from time to time. Maybe the things in your life are you just don't know where you're going to be job-wise. Maybe you don't know there are things pushing your finances around. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe it's something else. Listen, can I just say it out loud? Ask God for what you need directly. Ask him. Scripture says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Ask. Don't be afraid to ask. God is a heavenly father. He has resources, and he loves you. Don't be afraid to ask for what you need. And then go where he wants you to go. Do what he wants you to do. I promise you that provision will show up, and it won't be short. It won't be short. Too often, we don't see God working behind the scenes. We don't have the full picture. We don't see Boaz coming, right? We don't see the ephah of barley that's on its way that's in the mail. We don't understand that God is looking both at us now, but also at the generations to come, at our children and our grandchildren, at the, at the people that we influence that, that step into the next generation. Here's what I want you to seriously consider. It's a step of faith. It's one that, that might be hard to get to, but I think if we decide to do it, it's one that's very solid, and that's this. Thank God. Take a moment and say, thank you, God, for what you're doing now that I don't even see, that I don't even see. I know that you love me. I know that you have power. I know that you're working behind the scenes. Thank you for what you're doing that I don't even see yet. I promise you that God is present, that he's powerful, that he's working behind the scenes, that he loves us, and that good things are in store. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for everything that you've done, for the things that you're doing. And God, I just stand in the midst of these people and and I say thank you. Thank you for every heart here. Thank you for the stories. Thank you for the goodness of your grace. Thank you for the love and the redemptive energy that you speak into our lives. God, give us hope beyond hope. Give us faith beyond our ability to, to work it up within ourselves. Spiritually speak a blessing over everyone here today and let us be grateful beyond our ability to see it. Lord, I just thank you for everything that you're doing, everything that you're doing. In Jesus' name.